BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, and the Chicago Reader. Benny J, take it away. Troy LaRavier, president of the Chicago Principals Association, has joined us. Uh, Troy, welcome back to the show. Always a pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me. What's up, D-Nice? Hello, sir. Yeah, he is D-Nice. By the way, I don't know if you know this is Troy. We're going to get to really serious, important issues. But before we do, let's just deal with the triviality. Young Dennis shaved his beard. He's looking very dapper and handsome. Don't you agree? Uh, I didn't see him with the beard, but yeah, he looks good, man. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I got a mustache. I'm, I got yeah. your look going, man. Yes. Uh, you look way better with it. Yes. I miss the beard, man. It's been a while. <laughs> yes, it's been a while. Um, all right. Uh, the last time we were on the show, actually, we were having a we had a great conversation about I don't know if you remember this, but uh, hip hop and uh, Ice Cube and uh, Donald Trump, black people for Donald Trump. It was a different universe in many ways than the one that we inhabit now. So let's just deal with the local issues first. Uh, Troy, you're the head of the Chicago Principals Association. We've been talking a lot uh, about the decision by Lori Lightfoot uh, to reopen Chicago public schools. I know you've been very critical of it. Uh, First of all, any updates, something we should know, anything we should know, uh, any more COVID outbreaks, anything uh, about what's been happening uh, today or uh, since uh, I've been on the show anyway? Um. There's just the news about the potential outbreak at McCutcheon. I don't know if you guys have talked about that, uh, but that's the latest um, school reopening story that I've been made aware of. Have you guys heard about you? Yes, yeah, we talked about that uh, at a yeah. great deal. I was pointing out uh, at the outset of the show that uh, the more and more I listen to, uh, and this is my words, not Troy LaRavier, so you can feel free to disagree with me, Troy. Uh, the more and more I listen to uh, the people who are running Chicago public schools or speaking for them, they're sounding uh, uh, like uh, the MAGA hat wearers uh, after Herman Cain died of uh, COVID. Right. Uh, remember, Herman Cain was at the Trump rally. Uh, in Tulsa. Tulsa. Yeah. And uh, it's soon thereafter he came out with COVID. He died. And the, tr- the response of the Trump people is not to reconsider uh, their opposition to masks or their opposition uh, to uh, uh, closing down Trump rallies. It was to say, well, we don't know if he got it in Tulsa. He could have got it anywhere, uh, which is right. sort of what the public school system is arguing now. Go ahead, Troy. Well, there's another aspect of that, too. And we'll see if it comes to fruition. Um, because one of the things that CPS is uh, has a habit of doing is scapegoating principles for their mistakes, scapegoating folks at the local level for things that happen at the local level that are a result of the failure of the district to provide the proper resources at the local level. And then they just say principles, principles will say, you know, that principals ask all kinds of questions. They demand all kinds of resources that the district doesn't provide and then says, just make it happen. Think of something. And when, when you don't just make it happen, 
you then get the blame. And so I am, um, unfortunately, I think that that might be in the works here. Um, not only at McCutcheon, but anywhere where some, something, something like this goes down where the district's failure to provide schools with what they need leads to something like what may have happened at McCutcheon. We still don't quite know. And then the district then blames folks at the local level for their district level failures. No, that is an old story uh, in Chicago. Blame somebody else and particularly blame someone else lower down on the totem pole. Um, I'd love to get your reaction uh, to one of the main points uh, that uh, Mayor Lightfoot has made about the need to open public schools. And she said this, this was the main theme of the speech she gave, I think it was last Friday, uh, that uh, there's an equity between uh, kids who go to schools, poor kids, low-income neighborhoods and low-income schools, and their wealthier peers. And the need to open the schools is an attempt uh, to close the gap and to make things more fair. And that's why they're doing it. That's why they're reopening the schools. So your thoughts on that? Well, one of my thoughts is one you've probably heard before, but the second is probably one that you haven't. Um, And the first one is obvious. Uh, We can see who benefited uh, from this reopening in terms of those, if you consider getting back in school, (laughs) a benefit at this point. Uh, And we see that the top five schools in terms of with the highest percentage of students uh, opting in or families opting their students into in-person learning, all five of them, uh, Mount Greenwood, Ebinger, Burley, Mayor, and Wildwood, majority white, anywhere from 63 to 82%, excuse me, 83% white. Uh, and their opt-in rates go from anywhere from almost 90% to, seven, to, to, to just under 80%. So 80 to 90% opt-in rates those are the highest in the districts and in the district and every one of those schools with that 80 to 90% range is majority white. Now you take a look at the other end, uh, the schools, the five schools that have the lowest opt in rate, uh, and all five of them, Bond, Morton, Madero, and, uh, Temple Chikali, uh, are all, and, and excuse me, and bright are all majority black or majority Hispanic. All are 98% or more black and Hispanic. Uh, and their range of opting in, it goes, are all under 10%, 9% to 3%. And so we see that in majority, in schools where the people that the district claims to be, uh, the, the people that the district claims to be concerned about uh, are not opting, have the lowest opt-in rates. And so, You've probably heard that before, but the bigger part is, you know, cause the district can always claim, Hey, we we're just making it available. We have no choice in, you know, the, the rate at which they opt in. But for those who want to do it, you know, those black and brown folks who need it, we're making it available to them. The problem with that logic, however, is they did absolutely nothing, no kind of significant outreach to ensure that these people in these communities they claim to care about had access to the technology that they use to give people the choice to opt in. Like, think about this, Ben. They're saying that uh, black and brown families don't have the access to technology that, and because they don't have the access to, to technology for remote learning, we have to give them the option to opt in to in-person learning. And then how do they give them that option? 
<laughs> the internet, <laughs> right? It's an online survey. You had to have access to technology just to do the opt-in. Right? And so they use the same inequitable, inequitably accessed um, avenue that they were complaining about that was leading to these so-called inequities and in, in, in instruction in terms of black and brown students perhaps falling behind. And then they use that same inequitable road to give them that same inequitable avenue to give them the option to opt back in and did absolutely almost no outreach. If you ask them about the outreach they, they did, they'll say, well, they had an online uh, meeting, <laughs> and again, another online meeting where parents could come in and ask questions, you know, and it give you a sense of what this looks like if people are serious. I talked to Dr. Kareem Watson at the University of Illinois in Chicago. He's a medical doctor, and he has a bunch of different titles and responsibilities, but one of them is he's a part of the governing structure for five community health clinics. And we brought him in to do a panel on school reopening with a bunch of other medical professionals. And we said, look, if you're serious about inequities, in relationship to health or school reopenings, what does that look like? What do you do that shows you're serious? And then he gave an example of what they did when COVID broke out. Those five health clinics had to stay open. He understood that although he is committed to equity, uh, racial and otherwise, that he is a part of a profession where you know, that there's a lack of trust between that prof- many in that profession and the communities that they need to trust them, <laughs> that they need the communities that they want to continue to come into the clinics. And so he understood that I'm going to separate myself from being someone with good intentions and understand that people are not looking at me. They're looking at the institution I represent and oftentimes don't trust it. And so we have to do some significant outreach. They had um, what they called uh, think tanks all throughout black and brown communities with over 600 different participants, giving them the chance to address and articulate their grievances, the things that create the lack of trust and the things that needed to happen in order for them to trust that these clinics will be safe for them to come into. 600 different people in communities throughout Chicago so that they can understand what kind of messaging and policies they need to create to create the kind of trust that would bring people back into the clinics. The CPS, CPS did absolutely nothing like that. No kind of, no kind of outreach whatsoever. Um, and so, but that's what you do when you're serious about giving people equitable access to the thing you claim to want them to have access to. And CPS did nothing of the sort. Janice Jackson didn't, do it. Mayor Lori Lightfoot didn't do it. They didn't commit any resources to making it happen. Hey, here's an online survey. You want to come back or not? That's that's the gist of what they did. Beyond that, I mean, how do you explain the dramatic differences? And those are pretty uh, startling numbers. I, ha- I was not aware of that, Troy, until you said that. I, I just did not see those numbers. Uh, that Between the five schools, which are um, majority white, were uh, it's like a 90% or 80 to 90% uh, opt-in rate of kids going back to the school compared to uh, the five schools, which are overwhelmingly black or uh, Hispanic, where it's <laughs> under 10%, 3% in some cases to 9%. 
what are some of the other explanations for that really shocking difference? Well, one of the um, issues that I didn't mention is that um, there are some schools where over 50% of parents didn't even complete the survey. 50% of parents didn't even complete the survey. That is insane. Um, And so again, uh, between the lack of technological access to the avenue through which they were giving people the option to opt in and the deep lack of trust that was created by the district's historic dishonesty, historic incompetence. This like, like it's, this, this lack of trust didn't just appear, right? Janice Jackson herself led the effort to shut down a, a, a level one plus highly ranked, well-regarded majority black school so that they could hand it over to a far less uh, black <laughs> and a far whiter community in the South Loop. You presided over that. Nobody's forgotten that. We know you don't care about us. We know you will do whatever inequitable, you will put your name behind any inequitable policy that those above you tell you to put your name behind. I don't know if you agree with them or not, but we know you put your name on. And we're supposed to trust you? You know, and that's just one example. Mm-hmm. Um, there are numerous. And one of the things that folk need to understand is that the people who run the schools, right? were not involved in the reopening planning. The teachers were not involved in the reopening planning. There's a thing called design thinking, where if you're going to create a product, then you get the people who are going to use the product involved in the design of the product (laughs) so that you uh, uh, you can actually tailor the product and fix bugs beforehand. Uh, Things, design flaws, identify design flaws before you actually put the product out there. It's the same thing with a product. It's the same thing with a process, right? If you're trying to create a process and school reopening is a process, you get the people who are and who will be, who will have to engage and utilize this process involved in the design of the process. That's, that's basic. That is basic then. You know, even the NBA had enough sense to bring the players union in in order to create the plan that led to the successful resumption of their season. Like, even they had enough sense to do that. But the the CPS bring principles into the design process for creating a reopening plan, the people who actually have to implement the plans at a school level, did they bring us in? Absolutely not. Did they bring teachers in? The people who have to implement it in the classroom? Absolutely not. And so you have all these people who are, 3,000 miles away from what actually is going to go down in schools, making these plans, and as a result, all kinds of flaws uh, have surfaced as a result when they hand these so-called plans to principals, and principals are like, there's no way we can make this happen. You need X, you need Y, and then they have question after question, and the response from the district is always, we'll get back to you on that. That's literal, that, those are literal comments from a principal survey that we did. In fact, I think your listeners might be interested in the results of that survey. Do we have a little time? Yes, sir. All right. And so we asked about 1,100 principals 
uh, about 377 of them responded to this survey. So it's a very good sample size. Um, 33% of the population that you're sampling. I mean, when you, when you do, um, when they do these polls for president or mayor, often they get a sample size of less than 1%. <laughs> we have 33%. So it's a pretty good sample size. Mm-hmm. So we asked the question. Uh, we made a statement and then they have to say, do you agree or disagree? CPS has provided me with sufficient guidance and support on how to su- make reopening work successfully. CPS has provided me with sufficient guidance and support on how to make reopening work successfully. Less than 28% agreed with that statement. 48.3% disagreed with it. And 24% couldn't decide either way. And so basically you have almost 75% who could not say that they had enough support and guidance to make this work successfully. Mm -hmm. Next question or next prompt. We have the staffing needed to reopen our schools safely. So this is all about staffing. Am I going to have the people in place? Less than 22% agreed with that statement. 55% disagreed with it. And 24% didn't make a decision one way or another. So almost 80% could not say they had the staffing needed to reopen schools safely. Third, I am confident we will have enough protective supplies and equipment to keep our students safe. Now, this is the one area where C- where survey results are improving as we go along. It's still less than 50%, but uh, a few months ago, it was less than 20%. So right now, 43% believe, that, believe they'll have the protective equipment and supplies to keep folks safe. 23% couldn't decide either way. 34% said they do not. Uh, and so that one's been improving, but it's still abysmal. Uh, and perhaps the most eye-opening um, that sums up everything. Given the resources and plans that we have, opening schools for in-person instruction in January or February is the right decision. <laughs> Can I take a guess, Ben? Uh, well, let's see. Based on this, I would say, saying it's the right decision, 20% said yes. 16.5%. Well, I was a little off. I was within the margin of error, I think. You were within the margin of error. I would, I, um, and plus or minus four. So you are within the margin of error, Ben. 16.5% felt they had felt that given the resources and plans that they have, opening schools in January and February is the right decision. 64% said absolutely not, and 19.4% could not decide either way. So you have over 80% who could not bring themselves to say that this was the right decision. To that last... Go ahead. To, to that last point, let me just repeat. I can't say this enough, and I've said it all the time. Reopening the schools in the middle of a pandemic is so counter to the message that our leaders have been putting out for the last several months that you're really asking a lot of the people who have to go into those schools to follow them. And so I'm a little astounded that 90% of the parents have opted in uh, at those schools on the Northwest and Southwest sides. Well, of course, that's also MAGA country uh, in relative to the city of Chicago, uh, where the disbelief in the, in the COVID would probably be higher to begin with. But Troy, this is the problem, the challenge that Lori Lightfoot and Janice Jackson had from the get-go. They were, what they were asking people in Chicago to buy into was completely counter 
to what we've been told across the board since the pandemic. And they would say, but you got to understand, they'd have all their specialists. The schools are safer than bars. Schools are safer than Thanksgiving dinners with your parents. Schools are safer than even grocery stores. They're about as safe as grocery stores. So do you, do you follow what I'm saying, Troy? You had a challenge on top of all the difficulties of getting old buildings uh, with lousy ventilation. Mm-hmm. And diff- so that's the third aspect. I'm so glad you said that, Ben, because, you know, I talked about the existing lack of trust uh, and another issue. But the issue you just point out is that what you're asking us to do is contrary to the overall narrative that you're putting out there. And so when you add that to the mix, it's even more important that you bring people to the table to do this reopening process with you so that they can be there looking at the same information. Their representatives at least can be there looking at the same information you're looking at, Mm. understanding how the decisions are being made, why these decisions are being made. But it's the, 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 but these things are not happening. Like even when we're in teacher education programs and they say uh, they're teaching us how to do class uh, culture and climate in schools and classrooms, they say, don't just tell your kids the rules, have your kids be involved in making the rules and then they'll buy, have more buy-in and actually living the rules out and enforcing the rules. They may even enforce the rules with each other. If they are part of creating them, right? That gives you the kind of buy-in and trust that you need. But again, they haven't done it. And I believe there's a reason why. I don't think they're serious about this. I think this is a political move. Uh, I sent you guys an audio clip um, of Janice Jackson in a behind-the-scenes meeting with principals. And she understood that principals were upset that not only were we not involved in reopening planning, we didn't even get any information about the plans until literally a couple of minutes before the press got the information. That is insane. And so understanding that she tried to explain why she did that. Do you have that? Do you have that queued up? <laughs> do you have that queued up, D? All right, here we First go. Of all, uh, I think that we want, as always, to communicate uh, as early as possible with our stakeholders, um, uh, especially our partners who are leading our schools because you play such a pivotal role. Obviously, there are sometimes challenges embedded in that um, because we share information uh, ahead of time and hope that that information would, you know, remain um, confidential until it's appropriate to share. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes it's shared ahead of, you know, before we can get our message out. Um, and that kind of puts us at a disadvantage. That's it right there. Unfortunately, it's shared before we can get our message out. We would like to get information that you need to keep these kids safe. We would like to get this information to you in a timely manner. But however, we have another priority. What is that priority? Like we have to get our messaging right. We want to get ahead on the messaging. And so when I, we weigh these two priorities against one another, getting you involved in the planning, getting you the information that you need to keep kids and staff and yourself safe, we've decided that's not quite as important as our need to spin our message to the press. That is what she just told us that spinning 
is more important than keeping people safe, that the press is more important than students, that the press is more important than teachers, that the press is more important than principals. The press is more spinning their message. PR took priority over getting principals the information they needed to plan reopening as safely and effectively as possible. And so you look at that, the rest of this stuff, Makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's by the way, uh, that's that's Chicago. Nothing ever changes in the city. I always say this, Troy. If you do the right thing, it's, that's the best spin of all. So it's like uh, Rahm Emanuel and Laquan McDonald. He he buried the video. He figured, well, that's how I get reelected. I'll conceal the video from the public. They won't know it and because if I release the video, I won't get reelected. No. Had you done the right thing and released the video, you would have been reelected. You would have been credited for doing the right thing. So mm-hmm. instead of worrying about what message, what soundbite, you're going to get the Chicago Tribune editorial board to repeat, why don't you just bring in the principals and teachers to win them over? Like the NBA did with Chris Paul, the head of the Players Association, before they opened up the bubble. Uh, all right, now... This 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 news story that's been breaking the last couple of days uh, is very revealing. And let's get your thoughts on it. Try and see how widespread this. There's articles in the paper. Uh, teachers who have decided not to go back to the classroom, being locked out of access to their computers, so they can't do remote learning. Uh, and I, I know you're probably aware of this that's going on. You read the same newspapers I do and see the same stories. Uh, I, how widespread is this uh, in terms of what you're hearing from your uh, principals and members of your association and just your general reaction uh, to this policy? Um, I don't know how widespread it is, but I know it is certainly contradictory to the stated aim of making sure that these kids get their education. Like you just once again prioritize politics over equity. You prioritize politics over these kids because now the kids who are at home, which is most of them, you know, you were saying they're not getting in-person instruction and now you just created the policy where they're not getting shit. Or maybe they are getting shit, you know, from you. Um, It's cynical. It's abusive. um, It is the complete opposite of the messaging they've been giving us so far that they want these kids to have access to instruction because of what they might lose. What the fuck are they losing now because of you and your need to get back at teachers who don't agree with your politics, who don't agree, who don't trust you enough to put their lives in danger at a school. Yeah. You're going to shut kids out of instruction so that you can get back at them. That's some dirty ass shit, man. It's dirty. I'm with you on that one. Uh, by the way, another point. All this talk uh, in Washington of unity, and I always smile when I hear, we'll get into Washington. I cannot let Troy leave this show today without getting his thoughts on an insurrection and impeachment. Uh, we'll get to that. But it's in Chicago, when it comes to mayors and the teachers, and now mayors and principals, it's never like a moment of unity. You know, Lori Leifert was elected. She didn't have the support, obviously, the Chicago Teachers Union. They went way in with Tony Preckwinkle. But in the aftermath, 
There was no unity talk between Lori Lightfoot and the Chicago Teachers Union. Lori didn't make any attempt to call in the SDG, Stacey Davis Gates, and say, come on, let's talk it out. Let's just work it out. It's always this adversarial relationship where we're the bosses and you're the employees and you do what we tell you. Troy, I've been seeing this in Chicago forever. Shut up and get in line and do what we tell you. And I think that's a large part of what's going down here. Your thoughts. Um, you know, my tone, you know, unity is unity to, around what? Like unity is not like a goal in itself. Like you, it's unity to accomplish something. If there's no goal behind it, then unity is just a word. Um, and I could go all kinds of places on this. I'm so stuck on this national politics right now, but I'll try to bring it back local because I know we'll get there. Um, I remember seeing Jesse Sharkey at a board meeting um, after the strike and after everything was over. And his tone was shockingly... like this sort of attempt at exactly what you're saying or this sort of unifying language that I was shocked. Um, because when you know that your goal is one thing and their goal is another, you can certainly agree to have some, you know, amicable discussions and try to be respectful, but there's no unity to be had when you're heading in opposite directions. You have to get unity behind your goal. And you have to unify as many people as possible behind what you're trying to accomplish. You can't unite with the people who are trying to accomplish the exact opposite thing that you're trying to accomplish. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Please for unity with people who are not heading in your direction. Either way, whether it's a Democrat, you know, I couldn't stand when Barack Obama, when Barack Obama did that stuff. I'm like, these people want you dead, man. These people want you to fail. What is this talk of unity? I don't understand it. You need to be attacking these people, not complimenting them, because they're damn sure going to attack you, and that attack has a purpose. Right? That attack is going to be heard by others. It's part of your messaging in order to build your base up, in order to convince those people who are in the middle of the road that the Republicans are not the way to go. And I'll say more about them later. I don't want to just haul off on these bastards right now. <laughs> but again, it's the same logic on the local level. Um, I, again, you got to be respectful when, 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 when it's not necessary to be disrespectful. Cause I certainly, I certainly think disrespect. I, I don't think again, what's happening anybody who had any part in what happened naturally deserves any fucking respect right now. I think they need to be blasted disrespectfully, respectfully, it doesn't matter. But um, you certainly can try and have the right tone, uh, but still be on the attack because the other side is certainly going to be attacking you. Uh, by the way, I think what you were saying is that Jesse was trying to be accommodating. Uh, I remember when he when the strike ended and he was being very, trying his best to be accommodating. Uh, all right, uh, let's make the pivot to national politics. We talk a lot uh, with Troy about national politics. Oh my God, I don't even know where to start, uh, Troy. There was the insurrection. There was the impeachment. 
uh, and there was attempts, various attempts by Republicans to try to find some kind of narrative, you know, talk about a PR narrative to like either justify the insurrection or minimize the insurrection uh, in order that they could uh, slip out of holding anybody accountable mm-hmm. for went, what went down. And that goes from Donald Trump, who incited it, uh, to MAGA, who participated. Your general thoughts on all this? Well, the narrative that they went to was um, avoiding some talking about it and going to talk about, you know, this free speech rights on Twitter. <laughs> Right? That's their narrative now. That's all the hell you see them talking about. Uh, they've done two things. They've tried to uh, marry what happened at the Capitol with Black Lives um, and try to say, you know, oh, now you're against riots. You weren't against riots when um, Black people were getting shot by police and damaged some property. And so a few of them damaged property. They're trying to marry those two. That's part of their narrative. Mm-hmm. So that's basically forget about what to... to to put the scope of the public's ire on something else other than what happened at the Capitol. And the other thing is to get people upset about their free speech rights, you know, and to Republicans are really good at this. Ron was really good at this. Janet Jackson's really good at this. They change your argument to their argument and then they argue against their argument as if it's your argument and their argument is always a much weaker ridiculous argument than your real argument they do it quite well and it's like democrats haven't figured it out they don't even know how to call it out they don't even have to call it what it is you know and so you know they'll be like like with this this with this national piece um you know people have been taken off their social media accounts have been uh, taken away because they committed insurrection, right? But the way the right is spinning is that they're being taken away because of their conservative speech, right? <laughs> right? It, it's an attack on conservative speech. Right? Like, no, it's not an attack on conservative speech. It's an attack on speech that promotes insurrection, right? It's an attack on false speech, that leads to insurrection. Now, in a way, they're kind of right because false speech that leads to insurrection is pretty much what conservative speech <laughs> is these days. Um, and so that's my observation. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> Sometimes I just go off. <laughs> Give me some other examples. This is good, uh, you know, where they take your argument, they twist it around uh, and reduce it to. <laughs> it's everything they do. I can't even think of it. It's like it's ubiquitous. Like you turn on Fox News right now and one out of every two arguments they make, you'll see that happening Yeah. where they will take uh, something that the Democrats are saying or did or arguing for and turn it into a different argument, that's their argument, and then um, rebut their stupid <laughs> argument that they just replaced. And, you know, well, I, I can't think of one right. It's all right, it yeah. so much, man. That's all the right, argument look, of the day. Okay. All right, let's, uh, let's, let, let's uh, get it really specific. And uh, I urge everybody not now, but later, uh, check out the interview I did with Troy Orta Summer. Uh, It was was a good one, if I must say so myself, Uh, if I must pat myself on the back and Troy on the back. And he was talking about, this is in June, and you had been arrested, uh, part of a group that was protesting outside of 
uh, Trump Tower. Trump Tower. Yep. Yeah. And uh, we don't have to re- tell the whole story again. I urge every again everybody to check out that interview. Uh, it, this was right after George Floyd's murder and all right. the uh, unrest. And uh, <laughs> I just think about the tactics that were employed by the police officers against people crossing that bridge, Wabash Bridge, approaching Trump Tower, to the tactics employed uh, in Washington when the protesters, uh, protesters, I shouldn't use that, when MAGA, the marauders, descended the cult upon. Members. Yeah, the cult members. Cult members, the Trump yeah. cult. Yeah, the Trump cult the descended on. Insurrectionist, seditious cult members. Yes. <laughs> Let's call them the sedition cult. I like that. Yeah, sedition cult. So talk about that. Talk about, like, so now they say, oh, well, you lefties weren't complaining when uh, Troy and his bunch were trying to ransack Trump Tower. But now you're worried about uh, our MAGA supporters ransacking the Capitol. Talk about that, uh, Troy, the, the connection, the, the equivalency they tried to make between what went down in Chicago outside of Trump Tower and what went down uh, in Washington. So what happened in Chicago was where people, for the most part, trying to cross the bridge <laughs> and chant in front of Trump Tower. Uh, and they had a police force there that responded in full force, keeping people out of Trump Town. I mean, they they succeeded. They pushed. They had the horses. They had everything. They arrested us before. They arrested us before we even got to Trump Town. Before even, before we could have the opportunity. No, I'm pretty certain no one wanted to go in. Maybe there's a few people in the crowd that maybe wanted to go in. I don't know. But folks just wanted to protest in front of Trump Tower. That's why I went. They didn't even give us a chance to get there. Arrested us with the idea that maybe we might want to get into this, into Trump Tower. Or maybe they just don't want the scene of these people in front of Trump Tower. What I do know is that the city's law enforcement I need a new name for law enforcement because that's not quite what they do. Uh, the police force stopped us dead in our track with a massive amount of force. And I saw the exact opposite. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say the exact opposite. There were certainly some policemen there trying to hold folks back. Um, but they, the, 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 the nation, the city, the Capitol Police Force certainly did not bring the manpower to the table that was necessary to get the job accomplished. And many of the people who did come to the table did not want to do the job. And as a result, we got what we got. We got insurrection, we got people killed, um, and we have what it looks like law uh, legislators who were a part of the plan, who actually facilitated the breach of the Capitol. I don't even know I don't know what comparison. I can't. I can't even think of a point of a comparison to rebuff. There is none for me. Um, what I what I can can say about this, however, is that I said before. And I may have even said it on your show. I know I put it out on social media uh, right after the election, but before the insurrection, and I said quite clear that the most dangerous force in the world today is the Republican Party. Uh, that Al-Qaeda 
and its wildest dreams could not have accomplished what the Republican Party and Donald Trump have accomplished in terms of the erosion of Americans, American people's faith in their own democracy. Uh, ISIS, in their wildest dreams, could not have accomplished what the Republican Party has accomplished in terms of the political instability in the United States today that the Republican Party has been able to accomplish as they've aided and abetted their leader. Um, Russia, I would say Russia, but I almost feel like Russia, Trump, and the Republican Party are all one thing right now. That I said it before the insurrection, and the insurrection is the outcome or the outgrowth or the logical conclusion of that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, I think anyone could have seen it coming if they were watching. And it's easy to say that now, but I said it then. And we see it now. And what I can say again right now, Democrats are doing the same BS, man. Maybe. They're not calling this. Democrats are doing the same BS. They're not calling this what it is. You know, can you imagine how Republicans would jump on Democrats? In terms of the messaging and the, the treachery and just pouncing upon the opportunity to turn public opinion uh, against anything having to do with the Democratic Party. <laughs> Democrats need to understand that. Right, right? And they would do it in a way that was false, <laughs> in a way that wasn't true. Right now, the Republicans are the most dangerous force on earth, and the Democrats aren't using this as the opportunity to make that truth known. You know, they're focused on Trump. Every now and then, they'll say something about one of his enablers in Congress, but they're not using this to get the message out that the Republican Party is the most dangerous force for freedom, for democracy, for liberty on earth. Well, they are moving forward with impeachment. You must give credit for that. No, <laughs> I'm not giving them credit for that. Like, that's an obvious. For me, that's an obvious one. Like, you need to change hearts and minds. I don't know if impeachment is going to do that if your messaging that goes along with it is not as strong and concise and consistent and relentless as it needs to be uh, against these traitors, against these fascists, against these white supremacists. Um, they're just not doing it. You know, yeah, they're getting up and they're impeaching Trump. Um, but they're not turning this as and framing it as what it is. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the Republican Party. These traitors are the Republican Party. This instability, this disrespect for law and order is the Republican Party. That's what they are. You know, when the Republicans try and say the stuff about Democrats, it's always something, it's always a hypothetical. This is what will happen. This is what would happen under socialism or under this. This is what the Republicans just did. Like, this is the absence of law and order. This is what it looks like. And Republicans did this. You know, I haven't spent time really fine tuning the messaging, but damn, <laughs> let's all come together. 
in <laughs> the think tank. I mean, the, the Democrats, you got hundreds of millions of dollars to do this kind of work. Make it happen. Yeah. And then unleash it. Uh, unleash that messaging consistently and relentlessly um, against these debased, treacherous politicians. Yeah. And you talk about changing hearts and minds. Do you think it's possible to change the hearts and minds of... I don't know what the portion is. Let's say it's 40% of America that is in the Trump cult. You of them, maybe. But, you know, we need a majority. We need we, One, you need a majority. And two, you need a passionate, a sub, a sub part of that majority to be passionate. Um, and, like, that's how you build power, you know, where there's people, there's power. You know, it ain't always good, pal, as we can see. <laughs> Trump had people. We got to have people, passionate people. And part of that comes with the messaging. And so it's not just about turning them. It's about energizing your own people. Uh, and you can they be turned? Some, absolutely not. Some, absolutely yes. Uh, but the point is to get the messaging out there. Uh, and then back to the school system, you know, all this stuff about, and this, I guess this will take the whole interview 360 degrees, man. All this stuff about getting kids back in schools and learning loss. Hell, man, we had learning loss when schools were open. Right? The crap we see on a national level where people cannot tell truth, don't have the basic tools to tell truth from fiction, shows that there's been learning loss in schools for the last 50 years. There's, there's learning when CPS comes back into session, this focus on standardized testing and the school rating system that um, incentivizes you as a principal or a teacher to teach to very specific and narrow reading and mathematic goals and not teach and not focus a massive amount of energy on teaching young people about civic engagement and how to tell and give them some basic tools to be able to uh, tell, have processes to tell truth from fiction where they can understand the reliability or the validity of information that's being presented to them. Giving them those kinds of tools. That hasn't been happening in Chicago public schools. It wasn't happening before the pandemic. It's not happening during remote learning, and it won't be happening when they come back in person. We need to take this as a time to completely reevaluate what learning means. Because there's going to continue to be learning loss in Chicago public schools as long as we have the backward test-focused priorities that we have. Mm. All right. Uh, to that point, two things. We'll close it down with two two things. One, well, we'll start uh, with this with the local, and then we'll end with Biden. Uh, I've had a uh, – I like to point out – I appreciate the fact that Lori Lightfoot uh, is articulating her concern uh, for uh, the inequities that plague our system, uh, the inequities that make, make it such a disadvantage for poor kids in, in contrast to their wealthier peers. So I appreciate the fact that she's uh, championing that as an issue. I point out that she's doing it in the in the context of a labor struggle with the Chicago Teachers Union, in my humble opinion. This is mostly about uh, defeating and crushing the Chicago Teachers Union. But let's give her the benefit of the doubt, Troy, and say when the pandemic is over, when the vaccines have been uh, widely distributed so that it's safe to go back to school without a shred of doubt, uh, what would you like Lori Lightfoot and her appointees at the public schools of Chicago to do to continue their 
mission to eradicate inequities. Not just something they do when they're trying to force teachers to go back to the classroom, but something they could do going forth to show that they really do believe that these inequities uh, should be battled. Go ahead. So there's a story, and I can't remember the guy's name, Anthony DeMello. He was a priest or monk. And there's a story about him asking his student this question. Um, If you want to know the truth, what's the number one thing you have to have if you want the truth? What is the number one thing you have to have? And the student was like, oh, a passionate desire for it. And he kept guessing. He kept getting it wrong. And he finally like, well, what is this thing that I have to have if I want the truth? And the guy responds, you have to have an unremitting readiness to admit that you don't have it. And that, to admit that you might be wrong. You can't find the truth if you think you already have it, Ben. Because if you think you have it, you won't look for it. And I think that that's the number one thing that we need from all of our public officials, particularly Lori Lightfoot, because she seems to operate in the school context is if she thinks she has the truth. If she thinks, you know, the fact, when you think you have the truth, you don't invite principals and teachers to the table to play. When you know you don't have it, you bring folks together so that you'll be more than likely to get it at the table so that truth will come out, what you need, the realities, um, insights and perspectives that you don't have and that no one in your in the mayor's office has. Like, when you do, like, this is more about, because your question is almost like a goals question, and I'm thinking more, uh, uh, I'm thinking toward the same goals, but I'm thinking of, you have to have a process to get to those goals. And so I think that's number one. You have to have, you got to bring design thinking into politics, into decision-making, and bringing the right people to the table, being open and transparent um, in terms of your planning practices and how decision-making gets made. I don't realize that you can't do that all the time, but you can certainly be a lot better than you are. Uh, And then if that's the case, then the policies, uh, a better education system, are more likely to result from those kinds of processes. So process, that's the process answer. The product answer is, you know, our schools are, are, are immeasurably understaffed. Right? And that has to be dealt with. And let me know if I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm not, you wanted your question to go somewhere. No, it's, uh, that was a very pragmatic, now you're heading, uh, yes, a very pragmatic uh, response that uh, a, a mayor can make to dealing with inequities. Staffing, yes. Mm-hmm. Hire more teachers, hire more librarians, hire more nurses, et cetera, and so forth. That's right. And if you care about inequities, then there was inequities, again, the, like the learning loss issue I talked about in terms of people's ability to be intelligent decision makers has to get addressed. You have to change the priorities away from this test-taking BS and to creating engaged, civic-minded citizens and the kind of curriculum and practices that emphasize um, that. And then the other thing is, in just terms of resource inequities that already exist in the system, if I'm at Walter Payton or Northside or one of these other schools, I, as a student, have access 
to a massive amount, a massive amount of advanced curriculum, arts, music, not just music, but they're like 50 subcategories within music. I can suggest I can learn to play the cello. I'm just, like, you know what I'm saying? Where if, if I'm in a school on the, on the South side, that you, on these schools that you say you care about, that you say, you know, I don't even have a music class in some instance, let alone the ability to learn to play an instrument, to sing in a chorus, or not just a chorus, but 10 different uh, choral performance groups that will improve my artistic ability if that's the route that I choose. Well, if I'm on one of these South Side schools or West Side schools, I don't even have music in many places. I got gym. That's what I got. I got gym. Right? So if you care about equity, let's look at the inequities that exist between schools and start getting resources so that I don't have to fill out an application and go through some lottery just to get to a school where my kid has some decent educational option and uh, curricular options to choose from. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you on that point. And finally, Biden. Specific staffing curriculum. Uh, we'll close with Biden. We talked so much about Trump, uh, the exiting president. Uh, there's a president coming into office, and I know you and I will be talking in the f- uh, upcoming year, I'm sure, many times, mm-hmm. what Biden's doing. Uh, but what would you like to see from Joe Biden? Well, if you remember, I got to remind you, Ben, when, <laughs> I was, when I was pushing, you know, when the primaries were going, and you asked me who my candidates were. And, you know, I did not pick the two most progressive. I picked the two I thought could defeat Donald Trump. Yes. The first one was Bernie Sanders. And the second one was, do you recall? No, I do not remember. I've asked this question. So many people came on the show. I'm (laughs) flunking my own quiz. (laughs) Joe Biden. Joe B. Okay. I figured that's where you were going. You were very surprised that I yeah. picked Joe. And I was like, man, I don't have time to be ideological right now. Ben. Yeah. <laughs> I just need Trump out and I need someone who can defeat him to be the Democratic nominee. And there are only two people on that ticket that I'm certain can beat Donald Trump. Yeah. Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And Joe Biden certainly um, um, did not make a liar out of me. Yeah. Um, now, with that said... I like the same, I mean, the same thing I just talked about as a local level, their national incentives. Like there was a national incentive that led to this testing BS, right? That this focus on, there's a national incentive that was put in place. I think it was even under Obama to led to this focus on teacher evaluation. Mm -hmm. Like if you just get in there and evaluate the hell out of teachers, don't support them. Just keep rating them and giving them grades. Right. And so, there has to be national incentives put on the table because there were funding incentives that if you couldn't get money, if your state didn't pass a law to evaluate teachers 50 times a year, I'm yeah. exaggerating. You couldn't get uh, national money if you didn't have a system in place that focused on standardized testing that directed so much of public school energy into these narrow educational outcomes Mm. that have led to the kind of crap we see at a national level where people can't tell truth from fiction, but they can get a high score on a reading test. Um, So national incentives that one, I would think focus on identifying local out of school factors you know, because this principal at Blaine and I was a principal on the South Side and I was a principal in the wealthiest and poorest neighborhoods in Chicago. I was an administrator, back to back. And I saw that my kids who came in in kindergarten 
at one school were years behind my kids who came in at kindergarten at another. And so the deficit in what they had learned or their performance on these exams existed long before they got to a school. And so I like to see a national a national policies that encourage local that states and local municipalities and school districts to focus on addressing the things outside of school that lead to such inequitable outcomes when, once kids get inside mm-hmm. schools. And then again, uh, national policies that focus us on civics rather than on civics and become, and creating good citizens rather than policies that focus on scores on standardized tests uh, in two subject areas, reading and math. I think we need to get away from that. And I think a good national policy tied to funding well-designed could take us in that direction. Those are just two examples. Well, uh, that would be uh, Joe Biden acting like a real Democrat. And I hope for the same thing uh, on both of those fronts, but just on, on across the board, uh, don't try what you're, what you're, what you're saying uh, in, is that the Democrats for so long try to like accommodate Republicans or accommodate Republican thought. And so, yes, voluntarily, willingly, they came up with those those cockamamie things like prove to us before you get your money that you have, you're going to be tough on teachers. And we still see that mentality, Troy. That's what's at the heart of what's going on right now in Chicago. Prove to us. It's like corporate Chicago and Civic Chicago says to Lori Lightfoot, prove to us that you're going to be tough on those dastardly teachers, and then we'll support you. And Lori Lightfoot's like, I'm with you already. Mm -hmm. So Democrats act like Democrats going into uh, 2021 would be a nice thing to see. But remember, part of why Democrats folded to so much Republican BS is because Republican messaging was so strong, so consistent, so ever-present that it began to have an effect on the people. Yes, it did. And if the Democrats wanted the votes of the people, then then they had to start capitulating yes. to this message that the people had bought into. Yeah, so absolutely. You have to, it gets back to my other point. Yeah. You have to be the strongest messenger. Absolutely. And the equivalent, we'll close with this because we've gone overboard uh, too long, but the equivalent to what Democrats did with education policy would be as though Democrats in the face of Donald Trump saying over and over again that he won an election that he obviously lost. If Democrats were to finally say, you know what, we got to make a concession to Donald Trump. So we're going to agree to have a commission to look into these non-existent non-existent allegations, evidence of fraud. Do you follow what I'm saying? That would be the equivalent. At least they haven't done that yet. Do you get what I'm saying? Donald Trump, every day that message was put out, there was fraud, there was fraud, there was fraud. And his his emissaries in Congress, there was fraud, there was fraud, there was fraud. Fox TV, et cetera, and so forth. They repeated. At least the Democrats didn't buy into it, Troy. You get what I'm saying? They pushed back. They didn't do that on education, though. You follow me? So I'm following you. Yeah. Um, all right, Troy and Ravier, and then we're going to let you uh, get out without making you do any uh, songs, uh, hip hop, anything else. But we do have a request, Troy, if you don't mind. Uh, oh, um, we do. Yo, yo. Coming up next yeah. month is our two year anniversary. 
oh, uh, yeah? for the podcast. Yeah. And what I've been doing is I'm trying to get, you know, the guests that come on, maybe, you know, like on the radio when you hear it, like, hey, uh, say my name's Troy LaRavier and you're listening to. So if you could, you know, just give us a, a happy anniversary shout out and uh, I'll play it for an anniversary special. Would you mind doing that? Oh, hell no. I'll do it. All right, cool, cool. I'll just give you a countdown, and then, uh, yeah, you okay. just... So I'm saying... Um, happy an- um, happy two-year anniversary to the Ben Jarofsky Show. President of the Chicago Principal Association. Sure. Happy two-year anniversary to Ben at D-Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, hold on. He's got to give you the countdown, and then he can... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just feel uh, free and feel free to... And it's the Ben Jarofsky Show, we're calling it, right? Yes, yes. sir. Yes, sir. Feel free to say All whatever right. you want. I'll give you the countdown. Cool. Okay, here we go. Three... Two, one, go. <laughs> this music. What the hell is this music? It's, it's sincere. You're being sincere. All right, let's from the top, from the top. Let's go again. Three, two, one. Here we go. Hey, this is Troy Ravier from the Chicago. <laughs> okay. Oh, take two. <laughs> take two on that. We're looking for a sincere happy anniversary. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, this is Troy LaRavier, president of the Chicago Principals and Administrators Association. I want to wish my main man, Ben Jarofsky and D Nice a happy two-year anniversary. Two years. The Ben Jarofsky show is to two more times 50. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. That was, oh, that was awesome. and uh, Joe Biden would like to thank you uh, for uh, his support in the election. Isn't that right, Joe? Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The, the, the phone, make sure the kids hear words. Whatever that meant. Whatever, man. He, he appreciates your support. Uh, have you seen uh, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom? It's on Netflix. Have you seen it at the Netflix no, production? Every time I turn Netflix on, but I just haven't. Oh, you got to watch it. Time watching it. But watching you go through that, it had to do a, a couple takes. Reminded me, there's a funny, a funny scene, and I don't want to give it away, uh, where <laughs> Ma Rainey's nephew. Uh, she's insisting that her her nephew get to participate in the recording. Uh, anyway, when you watch it, you'll get what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> all right. All right. Troy and Ravier, thank you very much. Right. Uh, as I hope, always. I, hope I did justice. You did justice. Uh, we'll talk to you probably next month. All right, Troy? Oh, Dennis. Yeah. Um, I um, did a... Um, um, I did an A camera, B camera for this interview. Okay. And I did my and I got my own shotgun mic. All right. So if you want the video or the audio, the audio is probably because it's the shotgun's right here, and it's probably real clear. So I don't know if you want to yeah. use it, but I no, can for sure, it to yeah. You if you do, yeah, send All it right. my way. You got my email. All right. Cool. All right, very good. Take care, Troy. The great Troy LaRavia. Do you have updates before we head out the door? That was a good interview with Troy. Always yes, good having was. Troy on. Uh, Troy's uh, one of my favorite. Everybody knows that. I got my favorites. Everybody knows that. I was going to ask him to stick around, but that was a long interview. I'm sure he had things to do. But, Ben, we yeah. do have breaking news. Well, <laughs> the ball gets me every time. By the way, this is the back half. Okay. And seven months later, a follow-up. The following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times and Fran the Woe Man Spielman. Actually, Ben, I'm going to send you the link in Google Meeting. Boom. You can read the story right there. Look at us. Look at us. We're doing well. (laughs) 
Hold on. I'm very nervous now here. I don't know what to do. You sent me something. <laughs> well, I'm going to read the story. I'm going to read. I'm going to read. It's in the it's in the little chat thing on the side. You figure that out while I read this story. All right. Here I'll we go. It. Go ahead. The mm-hmm. headline reads. CPD suspended 17 officers, supervisors who lounged in congressman's burglarized office. The Chicago Police Department has doled out suspension of up to 20 days against 17 Chicago police officers and supervisors accused of sleeping on a couch, popping popcorn, and drinking coffee in the burglarized office of U.S. Representative Bobby Rush at the same strip mall where looters had a field day. Last year, yes, that's right, people. A follow-up on Popcorn Gate. <laughs> ben, do you have the link? Uh, no. Okay. Where's, I have not. I have we'll no figure, idea. Where we'll this figure link that is. out after show. After show meeting. <laughs> I have no idea where the link is, and I I have this this fear. If I could share this with you, ladies and gentlemen, it's called Baby Boomers Panic. Any button I push will destroy the system. This is something that baby boomers deal with. Millennials are like, oh, God. Something else about millennials. I know this is we got to get to the important story. Have you ever noticed this? The millennials never listened to messages you leave on their phones. You ever notice that? It's like millennials are like, why are you leaving me a message, boomer? <laughs> and I always forget that. Like I called a millennial the other day, the name, we don't need to uh, mention the name. And I forgot, gee, I forgot, I momentarily forgot. You should never leave a message for a millennial. I think Apple, from now on with your new phones, just take away the whole message things. Cause millennials don't listen to them anyway. Sorry, D, I went on that tangent. Once again, <laughs> my co-host and or my co-worker for the last four years, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the oldest it's, man in the radio. It's the thing. Listen to our messages. It's the thing that says chat in the top right corner. You right, see where it on. says chat? The top right you. corner there? Yeah, there's me. Uh, hey. Show everyone. Chat with everyone? That thing? Yeah, it's that chat. Green. And then it'll you'll see a link to the story. But anyway. There is no link. Okay. It's well, just a green just, just, just listen to me, and then you riff on it like we always do. I can't see a thing. Sorry to throw a, a wrench in the system there. Go ahead, man. Okay. Okay, please stop trying. Just listen. The Chicago Police Department has doled out suspensions of up to 20 days against 17 Chicago police officers and supervisors accused of sleeping on a couch, popping popcorn and drinking coffee in the burglarized office of U.S. Representative Bobby Rush at the same strip mall where looters had a field day last year. Yes, a follow-up on Popcorn Gate. Fraternal Order of Police President John Catanzara disclosed the punishment and said the union has filed grievances challenging all of those suspensions, which range from one day to 20 days. One suspended officer was punished for, quote, simply walking in and using the bathroom, Catanzara said. Catanzara also told the Sun-Times, quote, What do you want people to do when there was nothing going on? They had already secured the whole property. They had originally walked through the parking lot around the backside of all the buildings to make sure all the doors were secure when they arrived there. They came around the front. There was nothing going on. That was done. Period. Are they supposed to stand attention in the mall? All right, that's uh, Johnny Cancer, the head of the Fraternal Order Police. Uh, the article clearly does not uh, quote anybody from uh, the mayor's office to explain 
what the officers did. Am I correct? It's just Johnny Catanzaris. He was on Fred Spielman's show, and so he was mentioning that some officers have been punished. Am I correct in that one, D? I believe so. Okay. Yes, I'm looking here. Yep. Uh, yeah. All right. So uh, this is yes, one of my uh, uh, one of our leftover topics from uh, 2020. And uh, just because Johnny Catanzaris says something does not mean it's not true. Now, I know uh, Johnny Catanzaris is not a very popular man on this show. I will not in a million years understand uh, his utter obsession with all things MAGA, his love for Donald Trump. Donald Trump has said absolutely nothing to make life better for police in the city of Chicago. He's done nothing in terms of providing more resources to help the police, money for cop cars, money for, I don't know, more equipment, whatever. Money for to help with their pensions. Money to help pay for, like, if they want to see a therapist. Nothing. He's been worthless uh, to help in any measurable way. Police officers of the city of Chicago. If anything, he's been a detriment because he's reinforced some of the worst attitudes that have been so prevalent uh, in law enforcement down through the years and how you deal with people in Chicago. You know, if you don't like them, Bang, I'm knock them out, rough them up a little bit. We all know what goes on in Chicago. So I will never understand why uh, Mr. Catanzaro loves Donnie Trump so much, but he loves him. Loves the Donald Trump t-shirt, supports Trump every step of the way. And he got elected in part because he was more pro-Trump than his predecessor, Kevin Graham. We'll never understand why the Chicago uh, Federation of Police thinks it's a good idea in a city where 80 to 85 percent of the people vote against Trump to uh, have a leader who is solidly in Trump's corner. That said, he raises a good point. City of Chicago has never come forth with any kind of what? Report, analysis, whatever you want to call it, as to what went down with Popcorn Gate. What was the message that was coming through the chain of command? When those police officers settled in on Congressman Bobby Rush's office just off the Dan Ryan uh, back in when I was uh, this summer, I've lost track of the day. It was a long time ago. They've never come out and said, were the police officers invited to go there? The police officers said they were invited to go in there. City has never come out with a report. It's just one of those. There's just so many of these things. City of Chicago doesn't want to discuss them. Does just wants to bury the information. So in this particular case, I think he's got a legit, legitimate point. It's just like we just got finished talking with Troy LaRavier. The city of Chicago has never provided any kind of rationale for why all those police officers surrounded Trump Tower uh, in the days after George Floyd was murdered and just mass arrests of people who were trying to cross the bridge to uh, get to Trump Tower. Why? What was the strategy? What was the policing strategy? Why so much resources to around Trump Tower as opposed to neighborhoods? You know, whose decision was that? Was it Lori Lightfoot's decision? Was she in charge? Or was it just the decision of people on the street and Lori Lightfoot was not in charge? Same thing with Popcorn Gate. Whose idea was it to ultimately let the police officers or tell the police officers they could go into Bobby Rush's office? Did Bobby Rush's office in any way sign on to that? Was there any evidence of that? Was there a 
email from somebody in Bobby Rush's office. I don't know. I don't know if this exists, but an investigation, D, where you want an informed public, would reveal this. So I would like to see that. I would like to see um, what the city has uh, in regards to what went down with Popcorn Gate. But apparently they're ready to, uh, they must have, I, don't, I, I shouldn't even say that. Apparently they're uh, going ahead with an effort to punish the police. So I would like to see whatever evidence they have. I was going to say they must have some evidence. That's not always the case. <laughs> when the city, like Troy LaRavier was fired. I remember uh, Janice Jackson. He was fired uh, from Blaine School. Janis Jackson, the head of the Chicago Public Schools, came to the Blaine community and said, we have evidence. We, we just we can't share it with you now, but we will later. And they never shared it. So I would like to see what they got. I'd like to see, you know, I, I like you talk about being informed citizens. I like to be informed. And I think Canizera, these words will come back to haunt me. I think he's got a good point here on this particular issue, Dean. All right. By the way, Popcorn Gate, number eight in our 10 gates of Illinois Hell Countdown. Go download it now, chicagoreader.com, and wherever else you download podcasts. The 10 gates of Illinois Hell. All right, uh, I have a few more quotes from Kat and Zara here, then we'll end it out. Uh, It says says here, on Thursday, Kat and Zara argued Lightfoot's motive was more selfish to deflect attention from her own failure to stop the bloodbath on Chicago streets. Kat and Zara said, quote, there was 22 people killed, I believe, killed in one day in June in the city of Chicago during the summer. Distract, distract, distract. Coffee and popcorn. Coffee and popcorn. Don't look at this. All right, well, now he's, now Johnny's just driving off the, I mean, what? Oh, that's another whole issue. Just policing strategies in general. So is it Lori Lightfoot's fault that there was murder in the city of Chicago? Is that what you're saying, Johnny? Is that what you're saying? That's it. I mean, uh, Johnny Catazera has been all over the map in terms of law and order. When it came to the insurrectionists, the marauders, the MAGA hat wearers, he was like, hey, what's the big deal, huh? Just a bunch of boys having fun. Come on. And then he sang, remember D, broke into boys, just wanna have fun. I heard he sang that on the Fran Spielman yeah, I'm show. I'm still looking for that part of the, <laughs> the interview. Come on, Fran. I haven't heard they, that they, yet. They sang it together. Boys, just wanna have fun. So I, don't know. I mean, the guy's lost a lot of credibility as a, law, a champion of quote-unquote law and order. When he said, hey, what the hell? Is this a bunch of guys having fun, man. Come on. All of a sudden, he's, you know, great scholar when it comes to figuring out the correct police. I, I don't know. I'll just tell John Katzer this. I'm older than him. So I just remember Chicago being a very violent city for years and years and years. And I remember Chicago dealing, uh, policing tough cops, Goes back to 1968. You want to start it? Well, it goes way back before that. Cops, hey, hippie protesters, we'll show you how you deal. <laughs> we'll show you how we preserve, protect, law, and start. <laughs> Didn't see any of that with MAGA, by the way. So it hasn't worked. All that lock them up, all that sweeps, just throw people in jail if they possess a joint. That hasn't worked. Maybe a 
I don't know, time to think about something new. And you would hope that uh, the head of the Fraternal Order of Police would be part of the process of thinking of a new way, a new approach to law and order. So there you are, everybody. Remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews at the Chicago Reader website and wherever else you download your favorite podcast. More stuff than the 10 gates of Illinois hell, all right? Over 800 episodes for you to download. You can reach out to us always, Show at gmail.com, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J show at gmail.com. You can find us on social media at Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J show. And we have a phone number. Yes, it is true. 708-658-4788. I said it wrong in the first hour. Someone <laughs> I said the wrong someone listened to the show is gonna call the wrong number. But this one is right. 708-658-4788. Call the Ben Jarofsky show. Leave us a message. And who knows? There's a good chance we will play it on the program. All right, I want to thank Troy LaRavier, outstanding job as always. And of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom the show ain't possible. And as Troy will tell you, and as John Canizero will tell you, back home at home, they come white lightning. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Play the radio. Play the radio.